passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Some of my uh, favorite experiences when I was five or six uh, with my father uh, included Saturday mornings. Uh, my dad would take me to work with him. Uh, my father managed and still does manage uh, a rural water utility company down in southwest Iowa. And once or twice a month, my dad would have to work on Saturday mornings, uh, head out to the pump station a few miles outside of town, and we would have to check pH levels, water tower levels, uh, all of those fun things um, on Saturday mornings. And if I was up before he left in the morning, he would invite me to come with him. Now, for a five-year-old, it was a ton of fun to climb down under the ground uh, to check on pumps that were big enough and loud enough uh, to fill a 500,000-gallon water tower. Uh, it was one of the things that stood out to me whenever I would go to, to work with my dad. Uh, I, I just loved it. And one of the things that I always remember and, and will always remember of those trips is how many danger signs were posted every single place that you would look. There was a danger sign saying that if something is wrong with the pumps, you need to look out. A danger sign that says if you touch something you shouldn't, then look out. And of course, the place that was covered with more danger signs than any other location were the tanks of chlorine gas. Now, these danger signs, they were, they were posted everywhere, and, and even a five-year-old who was extremely curious knew that if he did something he shouldn't, it would be his last trip to work with his dad. Danger signs are a preventative measure, oftentimes to protect ourselves from ourselves, but oftentimes they're also to protect ourselves from those things that are without us, from those things that are on the outside, those things that can be deadly to us. This morning's passage is a massive danger sign from the Apostle Paul. Paul, having spent a significant time in the book of Colossians up to this point, reminding the Colossians of their status in Christ, of the supremacy of Christ for the church, he now turns to address the danger that is facing them. And it's a danger that's facing each of us as well. The danger of human religion. The church at Colossae was in danger from this religion that had its origins, not in the gospel, but actually in the human heart. There were a number of people in the Colossian church who had already been deceived, and they ignored the danger signs and had already been ensnared by this teaching. And so here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, Paul writes to warn the rest of the church, as well as to try to bring back those who have been, snared, have been ensnared, to come back to the truth, to the gospel. Now, this morning's uh, text is, is really straightforward, as we're going to see, if you have a Bible and open up to Colossians 2, uh, 16 through 23, you'll see that this passage identifies three separate ways that our hearts can be deceived. Three separate ways that our hearts can be deceived when it comes to human religion or man-made religion, as it is often referred to in the Bible. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up and follow along, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to those things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." I mentioned that this passage tells us three ways that our hearts are deceived when it comes to man-made religion or human religion. Let's take a look at the first of these. It's found in verses 16 and 17 of our passage, the first two verses. Here Paul describes one strand of the human religion that was present in Colossae and is indeed present today in our culture and whether we want to admit it or not is present in our hearts oftentimes as well. Last week, we looked at verses uh, 6 through 15, and as we looked at that passage, we saw Paul really attack the theology or the the thought process of the the human religion or the false teaching in Colossae. And now, in this passage, Paul turns his attention to focus on the practice or the application of what the false teachers believed. Now, apparently, there were some people in the church, some Christians in the church, who were insisting on keeping the Old Testament law. This wasn't actually all that unusual in the first century church. Paul's entire letter to the church in Galatia, or the churches in Galatia, was focused on this insistence on keeping the Old Testament law. What's unique here from the book of Colossians is that there's a twist in their thinking here. It's a little different from what was commonly seen throughout the churches of the first century. Here, these Christians believe that by keeping the law, even though it might not necessarily be required for their salvation, keeping the law was the key to spiritual growth. So, from this place, it was only a short jump to conclude that those who didn't keep the Old Testament law, uh, specifically their dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, or the Sabbath and festivals of the Old Testament, that they weren't as serious about their faith. So, you're beginning to see a little bit of a division in the church in Colossae. There were those who kept the Old Testament eating restrictions and the Sabbaths and the, the holidays, and then there were those who didn't. And those who didn't were, were seen as less spiritual, as less mature as those who kept the law. Notice how Paul responds. Paul responds by addressing both parties. To those who observe the Old Testament festivals and, and dietary restrictions, Paul says, don't judge those who in their freedom choose not to participate. On the other side, Paul encourages those who are not participating, not keeping the Old Testament law, to not be discouraged and to ignore the judgment of those who are. 
Now, what's significant here is that Paul doesn't say, and we're going to talk about this more in a moment, Paul doesn't say that the people of Colossae must stop observing the law. He doesn't say that the people of Colossae must stop observing the Sabbaths, the festivals, and the dietary restrictions. What he does say is there is no distinction between you and those who don't. See, Paul, for Paul, the, the issue wasn't the keeping of the law per se, but instead his issue or his focus was on those who were replacing the certainty of Christ and replacing that with the observance of the law. Take a look at, at verse 17. These, referring to the, the dietary restrictions, the, the keeping of festivals, these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Perhaps a better way of translating that is these things are a shadow of what has already come. The reality is Christ who has come. You see, observing the law wasn't the problem. Replacing Christ, the substance, with the law, the shadow, is what the problem is. This language is, is actually quite common in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews tells us that the law isn't inherently a bad thing, though sometimes it's used in a bad way. The law is simply incomplete until the coming of Christ and his fulfillment of it. Hebrews 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, we are told that the Sabbath is a shadow of the ultimate rest that Christ gives us. In the Gospels, especially in Mark chapter 7, we see that Jesus proclaims all food is clean, that the dietary laws of the Old Testament have served their purpose. And that's because the substance, the reality, Christ has come. And for us to look to shadows as a source of greater spirituality is completely unthinkable. Now, one of the benefits of, of wearing glasses is uh, sometimes I can catch a glimpse of the things that are behind me just as a, a faint reflection in the glass. This reflection is poor, it's, it's tough to see, and it does me virtually no good. Virtually no good whatsoever, but it, it is there. On our wedding day, I, I did not see Crystal until she came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder. And there she was, the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. But moments before she turned me around, I caught her reflection in my glasses. A glimpse of the reflection in my glasses, nothing significant, just a flash of white. So can you imagine how foolish it would have been, how devastating it would have been to my wife if instead of turning around when she taps me on the shoulder, I just say, no, I'm good. I got this reflection here in my glasses. I can see you right there. That's the problem that Paul is addressing here in Colossae. 
Those who have substituted the shadow for the substance or the the, the, the reflection for the substance. They've substituted their reflection for the bride or for what they are ultimately looking forward to. It may be a good thing, but its usefulness wanes when the substance is present. You see, the issue in Colossae was uh, far deeper than just a, a preference for certain traditions from the Old Testament. Within the hearts of these Christians was a disconnect concerning not just the law, but also the character of God. Remember, Paul doesn't tell these Christians to stop observing the law. He says, if you want to observe the law, that's fine, go for it. He seems to be saying that if they do observe these things, they must do so in a way that points them to the substance or to the reality, which is Christ, rather than the shadow. But that wasn't the case in in Colossae. Here we see a form of legalism, uh, this idea of keeping the rules, in this case, observance of the Old Testament food restrictions and festivals, and, and this belief that this was paramount, this was essential for true spiritual growth. Many of us are familiar with the term legalism. We oftentimes hear it in the church. When we think of legalism, we oftentimes think of the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. Our typical definition of legalism is trying to accomplish salvation through works and keeping the law rather than through grace that was offered to us on the cross. It's a good definition, but I do think that it misses the heart of legalism. At its core, legalism is an unbelief about the character of God really ultimately doesn't have anything to do with salvation or the law. It's an unbelief about the character of God. Let me give you an example. Uh, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson, he illustrates this by looking at the deception of Eve in the garden. In the garden, the serpent approaches Eve and leads the humanity into a rebellion against God by first and foremost doing what? By casting doubt upon the character of God. By casting doubt on the belief, on the truth that God is good that God is loving, that God wants our best. The serpent in Genesis chapter 3 calls attention to the commandment of God to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the way he portrays this command is not in a way that God is to be trusted, but instead as God as one who withholds good things from us. And the devil's way of thinking, and oftentimes in our way of thinking, keeping the rules are all about God holding out on us, stealing joy from us. The the only way that we can have joy is by ignoring what God has told us and what God has commanded us. And so we have to choose. We earn God's favor through works, Or we just go our own way and disregard who God is. You see, this view of God never sees God as someone who is good, who is loving, who is a a father who freely gives to his children, but instead as someone who requires us to earn anything and everything that God would give us. 
Here's the thing about the garden. God does indeed command Adam and Eve to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that wasn't the only command that God gave to Adam and Eve. God gave them another command right before the command not to eat. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And then it goes on after that and says, But don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first part of the command is to eat. And by extension, based off the context of Genesis 2, where everything that the man sees is good and pleasing to the taste and to the touch, is not just to eat, but to enjoy. To enjoy your fill. To enjoy the goodness of what God has given to humanity. It's a command at the very beginning. A command to enjoy what God has given us. Eat Enjoy what I have given you. Be satisfied with the richest of foods from my hand. God commands our joy in the garden. But legalism, this shadow that is cast on God's character from the serpent, sees obedience as the deprivation of our joy. When in God... God's original plan for humanity. Obedience wasn't the deprivation of our joy where we had to choose obedience or joy. God said, no, obedience is the key to your joy. Legalism sees obedience as the deprivation of our joy, not the key to it, just as God had originally planned. You see, at its heart, legalism does far more than just require us to work for blessing from God. It misunderstands the character of God. Gone is the picture of God uh, that, that was originally intended, the accurate picture of God, one where our obedience and, and joy are wedded together, where we don't have to choose between joy or feeling good and obedience because they are one and the same. Now the default position of all of humanity is we have to choose. We can enjoy our life or we can follow God. But you can't have both. Let's come back to the situation here in Colossae. Hopefully our, our situations as well. The Colossians had gone astray. They no longer saw God as God himself. They never, no longer saw God as the key to our spiritual growth. Instead, they saw their obedience as the key to spiritual growth. They were deceived about the character of God, that God was holding out on them, and the only way to earn what God was withholding from them was obedience, was by observing the, the, the shadows rather than the substance and so they looked for spiritual growth in the law rather than in Christ. I think the, the human religion espoused in Colossians is actually something that's relatively uh, similar to what we see uh, today, not just out in our culture, but also, if we're honest, deep within each of our own hearts. 
It's easy for us to identify legalism out there, but the reality is legalism, if we're not careful, lives within each and every one of us. We may cognitively recognize that our obedience and our joy are wedded together, that to seek God is not just for Him, but it's also for our own good. But so often that doesn't sink down into our hearts. So a time of of prayer and Bible reading shifts from a time of communion with God to something that we have to do in order for Him to bless our day. Our tithing and generosity to the church are shifted from the pursuit of our own joy to a duty that robs us of joy. Our evangelism experiences uh, the same shift from something that gives us joy and seeks the joy of others to something that scares the living daylights out of us and robs us of joy. And the same can be said about any and every part of the Christian life. All of these things are rooted in our heart's deception about who God really is and how God actually operates. You see, it is so easy for us to believe the first lie that was told in the garden that God doesn't really want our good. It's so easy to believe the the lie of the serpent that it dwells within each and every one of us, that joy, that enjoyment, that fulfillment doesn't lie with keeping God's commands and following God, but instead somewhere else. It is so easy for us to forget that God is someone who is giving to us freely, not someone who must be appeased. How easy it is for us to think that we have to choose our happiness or God's. You see, this is the lie that many of the Colossians face, and it's a lie that faces each of us as well. We may not face the struggle of keeping Old Testament festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. We may not face the the temptation uh, to follow dietary restrictions, but the cause is the same. Human religion says that true spirituality is found in rigid obedience. And if we're not obedient, then God is going to hold out on us. But the gospel says that true spirituality is found in enjoying the true Christ. There's so much more that we could say about legalism, not just in the church, but in our own hearts, uh, how easily it crops its ugly head in our lives. But let's keep looking at the next two verses to see another way that human religion deceives our hearts and distorts the view of the true God. Take a look at verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. 
Paul continues to call the Colossians here to gospel faithfulness, to to be on guard, to to be aware of the danger of human religion. And here he's focusing on the mystical strand of human religion. Apparently, there were some in Colossae that in addition addition to demanding observance to the law, were also connecting this to a form of of holistic humility, if you will, uh, that includes asceticism or or being harsh to their body, depriving themselves of good, the, the denial of the body, all for a hope of encountering God on a deeper level. What's more, these these teachers were even encouraging the worship of angels. Now, you may be wondering, how on earth were people led astray by this teaching? The Bible tells us that we're only supposed to worship one God and one God alone, and that is the God of Israel. So how could they be deceived in thinking that the true teaching of the Bible was to worship angels? Surprisingly, this idea of worship of angels was actually quite common in first century Judaism especially among those who lived outside of the promised land. It was very common for Jews in the first century and before that and after that to use and rely on angels, to pray to angels, to look to angels for protection from evil spirits. They would wear amulets and charms that were supposed to protect them from evil spirits because they had the names of different angels written on them that showed their devotion to these beings. And all of that, they emphasize visions for true spiritual growth. If you actually wanted to be a part of God's inner circle and extreme self-denial, denying your body, going without food and water for weeks at a time, depriving yourself of any good thing, wearing things that cause you pain. These things were key to bringing bringing about a vision from God, allegedly, that was the key to greater spirituality. And this, of course, even though they claim to be humble, this leads to a greater source of, of pride, a greater sense of pride, and it does nothing to address the issues of the heart. You see, this emphasis on angels for protection and and self-abasement to receive a vision from God, they were actually neglecting the image of the invisible God, to use Paul's language in Colossians chapter 1. They were neglecting Christ the one through whom God has revealed himself fully, the one through whom God has spoken fully in these last days. And they turned their attention elsewhere. This human religion deceived its followers about the power of God here and now. They believed that God couldn't be trusted to protect them from evil spirits, and so they relied on angels. The revelation of the mystery of the gospel, which we talked about a few weeks ago. The mystery of the gospel being that Christ is in us, especially in us Gentiles, those who were far from the promises of God. The mystery of the gospel that has been revealed to us wasn't good enough. And so they turned their heads and looked for visions that might show them the true mysteries of spirituality. Their union with Christ was not novel 
enough for them. And so they sought new and different ways to go deeper in their faith. And again, it's likely that none of us wears an amulet today to protect ourselves from evil spirits, but I think that we can be just as guilty as the Colossian church of doubting God's power for us here and now. We can grow bored with the revelation that God has given us through his word and so seek revelation from other places that will get us greater assurance of life after death. We can run to different spiritualities and superstitions such as as horoscopes to to find meaning. We can run to self-help books rather than to Christ for self-improvement. And we can do so all doubting the power of God. Not just to give us salvation, but the power of God in our lives right here, right now. We can build up our lives in such a way that we trust ourselves and don't have to trust God. We can doubt the love of God to take care of us and our families and so be paralyzed with anxiety of the future. We can seek after visions for assurance of spirituality, all while neglecting our union with Christ, our head. See, it's easy for us to dismiss the mysticism of Colossians, to dismiss this strand of human religion in Colossae, but it's not all that different at its heart than what we see today. Might not be as visible in the church as the legalism, but the temptation remains. The temptation to not just doubt God's power and rely on angels, but to doubt God's power and rely on ourselves. It's an ever-present temptation. Will you rely on your head? Will you rely on your connection to Christ for nourishment and growth. Our last verses here display one final strand of human religion. Take a look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These things referring to things that all perish as they are used, which is according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Not only were the Colossians tempted toward legalism, not only were they tempted toward mysticism, but they were here, they were also tempted to what we already talked about briefly, this unhealthy self-denial, this asceticism. Asceticism is the rejection of all good things with the hope and the expectation that we will grow spiritually. In many strands of asceticism, it actually caused people to cause themselves bodily harm with the hope that God would reward their discipline, to use their language, of the flesh. Apparently, there were some in Colossae that we're advocating this form of physical discipline in order to accomplish spiritual gain. 
And notice how Paul responds to this teaching. First in verse 20, he points out that this human religion is, is rooted in the demonic. We talked about this a little last week. The nasty asceticism that we see in some forms of human religion is, is a form of enslavement to the elemental spirits that Christ defeated in verse 15 of chapter 2. Verse 15 says this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Second, Still in verse 20, Paul reminds us that our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is still significant for us today. The phrase that we see here, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, should be read as an obvious rhetorical question. Should be read like this, you've died to the elemental spirits of the world in your union with Christ, haven't you? Of course you have. So why do you continue to submit to those regulations as though you still were under the world's domain? Remember what Paul says in chapter 1 of Colossians. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are no longer citizens of the domain of darkness, but now we are citizens of the kingdom of his beloved son. So it is unthinkable for us as Christians to return to slavery. It is unthinkable for us as Christians to leave behind the kingdom of his beloved son. But as we see here in Colossians and oftentimes in our own lives, it is so easy for us to do just that. Paul's response here is to remember your union with Christ, the one who bought you, who purchased you, and who has defeated the rulers of the dominion of darkness. Next, in verse 23, Paul points out that this teaching does have the appearance of wisdom. He says there's no point in denying that. Some of these teachings that seem to focus on extreme denial of all pleasure in this life have the appearance of of wisdom. One thinks of Jim Carrey and his frequent trips to southeast Iowa to Maharishi University, focusing on transcendental meditation and self-denial. It gives the appearance of wisdom, which is why Eastern religions such as Buddhism, with their emphasis on the denial of self, are spreading in popularity. From the world's mindset, on the surface, it seems wise. But, notice what Paul also says in verse 23. These teachings are ultimately worthless. These teachings are ultimately worthless. They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Self-denial may seem impressive. It may seem like it does great things, but at the end of the day, It does nothing to address the source of all our deception, all of our brokenness, and all of our wickedness. And that's the heart. It does nothing to address the heart. Now hear me clearly. Self-denial can be a good thing. In fact, it's a part of the gospel call that, that Jesus gives when he tells his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. But we must 
recognize that it is not in and of itself something that leads us to greater spiritual growth. It will only leave us empty. It will never change our hearts. So what of today? We should seriously consider the ways that God is calling us to self-denial. We should consider what the calling of the gospel really means for us. But at the end of the day, much like we saw as we were talking about legalism earlier, we must ask the motivations for doing this. Are we denying ourselves to get a greater plane of spiritual existence? Are we denying self because we think we can earn God's favor? Or are we denying self as a joyful expression of our union with Christ. Two people doing the exact same thing can do so for radically different reasons. Imagine a couple who opt to sell most of their possessions and choose to live simply. Is this right or wrong? Could be either. If they are doing so as a way to gain God's favor, as a way to gain greater insight or greater spirituality, then it's wrong. But if they are doing it so their lives are less filled with things that can distract them from their union with Christ, then it is a good thing. At the end of the day, human religion differs from the true call of the gospel in one key way. It seeks to replace or supplement our union with Christ rather than draw us deeper into our union with Christ. It is something that we face on a near daily basis, whether it is our struggle with self-denial or our heart's tendency toward legalism or a temptation to not trust the power of God, not just for salvation, but for here and now in our lives today. And the answer is simple. Consider the implied command of verse 19. Hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The key to true spirituality, the key to true spiritual growth is simple. Hold fast to the head. Growth comes from your union with Jesus. But that doesn't mean that it is easy. Our heart's default is human religion. I've mentioned this before, that Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that he had to preach the gospel to him each and every morning because his heart's default uh, focus was on legalism. It was on the law. It was to uh, earn God's favor. And so he had to wake up every single morning and remind himself constantly of the call of the gospel, of the free gift of grace of the gospel. Our hearts default to this form of human religion. They default to doubting God's character. They default to doubting that God is at work for us today. They default to doubting that we think that we, can, we, we need to earn our salvation, that it takes work to remind ourselves that God is loving, God is caring, God is gracious, God is at work for us 
right now. God is involved in your life right now. And when we follow him obediently, it will lead to our joy. That it takes intentional, hard work to examine our hearts and to see where we do not believe the gospel. Where we do not believe God is good and caring and loving. Maybe not in our heads, but in our hearts and how we act. This is what our passage reminds us this morning. It reminds us of the danger of human religion. It reminds us of the true source of spiritual growth. Fruit, remember fruit is a a key focus of the book of Colossians. Paul is deeply concerned with the fruit of the church in Colossae and by, uh, by extension he's deeply concerned with, God is deeply concerned with the fruit of us as Christians as well. Fruit that is pleasing to God is found in union with Christ, not in the trappings of human religion. Fruit that is pleasing to God is found in union with Christ, not in the trappings of human religion. So let us strive to remind ourselves of that union. Let us strive to remind ourselves of what he has done for us, what he continues to do for us through that union. Let us not look to ourselves for our growth. Let us not look to other places for our growth, but instead look to the head. Let us hold fast to the head through whom each of us grows. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us. That you would help us to examine our hearts. To see the places where we don't trust your good character. Where we think that we have to choose between what we want to do and what makes us feel good and following you. Help us to examine the places of our lives where we think that we can't trust you. That you can be trusted with salvation, but you can't be trusted with today. Examine our hearts, God. And help us to rely on Christ, who is our head and our source of nourishment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.